0: So I'm bringing the message today, and, um, and so I'm going to be speaking on, actually, let me give you the greeting, and just see where you guys go with it. Shalom. Just so you guys know that that's a greeting, right? So what does shalom mean? Peace. Good. So we, 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 know, this, we know this phrase. We hear it. In Jewish culture, still people do this when they greet one another. They say shalom. There's a lot of cool things that are going on with that phrase, whether or not they understand the depths of it or not I'm not sure it could become cultural practice and they just say it but there's some cool things behind that idea but what is peace? what exactly is peace? I think um, I preached a sermon uh, about a year ago where I yelled at Jim for a little while and then finally told him to just give me some peace and quiet and we kind of established that peace and quiet is not really what biblical peace is about What what does peace look like? What does peace feel like? How is peace found? Here's a couple questions here. Just think about this. Especially, I wasn't even planning this. I mean, I didn't do this on purpose, but um, with the International Day for the Persecuted Church, is my idea of peace consistent with the global realities of our Christian brothers and sisters? When you think of God as a God of peace, what kind of expectations do you have of Him to be peace in your life? In our, the realities of our global brothers and sisters in Christ, do those line up with my idea of peace? If not, my idea of peace may be off. Is my idea of peace consistent with what the Bible teaches? Is my idea of peace consistent with Christian history? If we don't find adequate answers to these questions, then, then we might find ourselves tossed around by the storms of life. And remember that Jesus promised that there would be storms of life. He didn't say, go out there and I'll be with you and it's all going to be good. He said, don't be surprised when they hate you. They hated me first. Don't be surprised when, they, when, when you face trials. I face trials. Of course, in a you're going to face trials. You're going to face trials because you're a human being in a sinful world. But Jesus went beyond that and said, you're going to face special trials because you're proclaiming the gospel. For most of Christian history, from its very foundation, Christianity has faced trial after trial after trial after trial. Um, We live in a virtual bubble in our time period with this century and this place where we live. And even in this time, Most of the world is facing trials in the name of Christ. Of course, the sinful, fallen world does not like Christ, does not like Christians. Jesus said they would. He tells us in Colossians 3, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let me pray, and then I'll try my best to get through this topic. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. You are the Prince of Peace and as we approach the Christmas season, we sing songs that speak of you being the Prince of Peace. You promised peace to your disciples. You prayed for peace for those who are yet to still believe. That would be us. You prayed for us. Teach us what it means. Teach us where it's found. Teach us how it's experienced. Teach us how to Reflect it. Be with my mouth. Protect me from triviality and silly things. And protect the hearts and ears of the people here, that they hear what you want them to hear, not the things that I want to say. Be glorified in this message today. Be glorified in your church here in Pekin. For your praise and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> shalom is not just a greeting, it's also, it's also one of the, the um, Old Testament Hebrew names of God. Um, I did this first service just because I wanted to know what kind of people I was talking to, but is, ha, who, who's ever done, and don't be shy or ashamed if you've never done this, just just Answer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not gonna answer anything embarrassing. Don't worry about it. Um, but who's ever done a, a study of the of the Old Testament Hebrew names of God? That's like four more than than first service. I was surprised. I think, honestly, I, I think they probably were just being shy and weren't raising their hands. I think more people have done it than that. But yeah, it's a fun study. I actually, oh, I would take my 10th grade students through it. I had about 14 of the Hebrew names of God that I would deal with, and that took too long, so I had to whittle it down to 10. And you deal with things like Jehovah Jireh and El-Rai, the God who sees, and how he blessed Hagar, or Jehovah Nisi, the banner that fights before us, and all these these things, but one of the names of God is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my peace. But I think to really understand this name, I'm going to try and go through this story, so I hope I don't lose you. I've got a bunch of jumbled thoughts that I've thrown together here. So, but in order to understand the weight of this, this name, Jehovah Shalom, and the idea of peace, I think it's helpful to understand the context in which that name first appeared. And that context of the, in which that name first appeared comes in the book of Judges. Comes in the story of Gideon, but there's something interesting about this story. In Joshua one one, we read after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord said to Joshua. So there's a passing of the baton, so to speak. Right? Moses is 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 ruling; he's the head guy. And when Moses dies, the Lord then spoke through Joshua. But in Judges 1.1, one, and for those of you who like a little bit of silliness. Also in Judges 22, you can look that up and talk to me later if you want. You'll see the same phrase. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who will lead us? They're leaderless during the time of the Judges. Two things, politically and religiously. Politically, there's no central government at all. Now Joshua took a lot of the land. They allotted the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. But they're really functioning as independent regions on similar territory. And so what happens is they all have their own various ways of lives. And there's no real central government. In fact, in Joshua 17, 6, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I've talked about this before. But do you have any idea how frightening that kind of society would be? Just absolutely how frightening that kind of society would be To live in a place where people just decided What they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it No consequences, no accountability and Locking my door Locking my door would would, um, would not be enough Right? Just think about it, I want that I want There was a, there was a um, I heard a story once of, a, of a, a missionary Who brought a man from India Into the United States and he was, in, he was in Washington, D.C., and he saw, he saw a guy who wanted a newspaper there. He drops a quarter into the, to the, to the box. You've seen those newspaper boxes before, right? You open it up, what do you do? You grab a newspaper. Which one do you grab? The one off the top. Very good. We're, we're Americans, right? But for the guy from Indy, he was really confused. He was like, what was that? And he's like, what do you mean? You got a newspaper. He said, yeah, but when he opened the box, the whole stack of papers was available. Why did he just take the one? Yeah, we have a system of government. We have rules. We have accountability. We have a certain sense of morality that's weaved in the fabric of our society. And yeah, I'm sure there are people that grab a few and try and sell them or something like that. But we have a basic system that just says people aren't going to do that because it would be wrong. With this guy from India, their system was a little less of a a political structure where they had that kind of accountability. He couldn't understand why everybody just didn't take the whole stack. Go sell them, make some money, or at least you have something for kindling and for wood to to cook food on. And that's just someone coming from India, to the United States. Can you imagine living during the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Religiously, there's no central place of worship. God says over and over in Deuteronomy 12 when he's talking to his people, when you go into that land, there's going to be certain experiences that you're going to have. You're going to have to fight some fights, and I'm going to be with you, and there's going to be some amazing things that happen. He says, but I want you to go to a certain place, and he doesn't tell them in Deuteronomy 12 where that place is going to be, but he says there's going to be a certain place, and it's going to be in that place that you will gather together. It's going to be in that place that you offer up your sacrifices. It's going to be in that place that you give your offerings. It's going to be in that place that you praise me. And he even goes so far to say, do not do this in other places. And yet when you come to the book of Judges, at that time, the Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh. It hadn't come to Jerusalem yet at that time. And, but everybody's doing their own worship thing wherever they want to do it. Some of them are doing it in the name of Yahweh. There's a syncretism where they're, where they're worshiping idols in the name of Yahweh. Some of them are just flat out worshiping other idols and other gods. So that's the two characteristics of the time of the judges, is you have no government, you have no central worship system. You also have this cycle. Have you, is, have you guys heard of the cycle of the judges? It's a four-part cycle. I think it's helpful because you do see it. When you re- if you read th- straight through the judges, and you also have to understand the book of judges isn't written chronologically it's just all these stories that are put in there but um but still you see the cycle of what happens in the lives of the israelites during this time period and i think the same cycle will period will will appear in our lives at times but first thing you read is you as a generation comes around who forgets the lord and so what happens when they forget the lord they begin going down ways of idolatry what happens when they go down rays of idolatry? That's the first part of the cycle. It's four parts is idolatry. The second part of the cycle, as they go down through um, if they, as they they go and worship idols, God God is angry with them and he lifts his covering from them. And when that happens, neighboring nations come in and oppress them and bring them into bondage and captivity and slavery. That's the second cycle is is bondage. Which leads to the third cycle where they're brokenhearted and they realize they made mistakes and they cry out in repentance. The third part is repentance. And God, being the merciful God that He is, He hears their cry of repentance and He sends a deliverer. We call him the judge. That's the fourth. So you got idolatry, bondage, repentance, deliverance. But remember, I said it's a cycle. So what happens? The judge delivers them. And they experience a time of tranquility. No war. And they forget about God. And they start worshiping idols. And they're put in the bondage. And they cry out, I'm sorry, and repent. And God sends a deliverer. And in their time of peace, they forget about God. and See what I mean? You guys, anyone say, that's my story? (laughs) Any of you find it odd that you pray more when there's trials and tragedies in your life? Yeah. We forget. We forget. I do that. What happens through the book of Judges is just this vicious cycle. And the idolatry, I'm telling you, there's some stories I wanted to tell you guys just to get you to feel what it must have been like during this time period of the Judges that that are, are really rated R. They're just horrible, horrible, horrible stories. Um frightening place to be. Absolutely frightening place to be. And it's during this time period that God says, Jehovah Shalom. He says it to Gideon. The story starts, and I'm going to skip through it. I'm not going to give you the whole story. I just want to get you the flavor of Gideon's story. But the story starts with Midian, um, the Midianites. I get tongue-tied here. Midian, Gideon. All that kind of stuff. The Midianites are oppressing um, the Israelites. And so every time they plant fields, the Midianites comes up and tears them and steals their food. Whenever they bring um, the, the cattle and the livestock out, the Midianites will come in and, ki- and kill the animals and eat them for themselves. And so the Israelites find themselves, they don't even build towns anymore. They just hide in caves. And when the Midianites aren't around, they go out and get something to eat and go back to the cave. And so this is where we find Gideon. He's, hot, he, he's in a wine press. Oh, what's he doing? Well, he's in a wine press. He must be making wine. No, this is no time for celebration. He's not making wine in the wine press. He's processing grain. He's processing wheat. So it could be used to make bread and food for the people. But why is he doing it in a wine press? Because he doesn't want the Midianites to take their food. He's trying to hide it there. And it's during this time that the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon. Now, I, I wasn't going to, last night when I was going over this, I wasn't going to mention this, but I, I do find it helpful. The angel of the Lord, most scholars will say, is, is a theophany. Basically, it's, G, it's the, the pre-incarnate um, Jesus visiting um, Gideon, which happens quite a bit in the Bible. I, I'll give you one illustration I think is real exciting in, um, in the story of Abraham when he goes and, um, and goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, um, the angel of the Lord pe- appears to him and, um, and scholars believe that's likely Jesus which is really cool because when you go to John 8 and Jesus is fighting with the, with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are like our father's Abraham and Jesus is like no he's not the devil's your father but Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced and I always thought that Abraham had a, was told about the coming of the Messiah. So he probably did, that as well. But Abraham talked to Jesus. He saw his day. So I believe that's Jesus here. So I'm going with that. And he comes to Gideon, and he says, "Remember, where, where's Gideon? Hiding in the wine press, making um, wheat, you know, for bread." And the angel says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Me? I, don't, I, I love, uh, one thing in the written word is you don't get the tone. I, I wish I could get the tone if that's sarcasm there, you know? The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Go with that wheat, buddy. Good job. Make me a sandwich. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it wasn't sarcasm, but it just seemed like an odd thing. And so, and the Lord turned and said to Gideon, Go in this might of yours. What, what might exactly are you talking about? You know, go in this might of yours and to him. I'm sorry, I skipped the line. In this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Remember who's talking there. And he said, this is Gideon now, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I'll be with you. See, Gideon didn't recognize the messenger, nor did he really even hear the message. I will be with you. Do you know who that is, Gideon? Well, not yet. You know, Want some bread? I'll be with you. Has Jesus ever said that to you? Yeah. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples and in the nature of that passage, he's speaking to the church in general. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when you find yourself in that wine press and Jesus says I want you to make a big difference in your workplace but I got a really low level job and it's a really low level kind of company in a really low level kind of town surely you could do something better with somebody better (laughs) I'll be with you do you know who I am Jesus says that All right, I'm gonna spend too much time on this story, and there's some other good points that I want to say. So Gideon gets some food for this guy, and it's during this time he brings his food in to the angel of the Lord, and and um, I don't know how you feel about this, but the angel of the Lord looks at it, kind of cool. He um, touches it with his staff, and it all burns up. And they'd be like, "But I just, I just made that. It was gonna be so good." He just burned the thing up. But you know what's happening there? is he's receiving it as an offering. He's receiving it as 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 a as a gesture from Gideon. And it's at that moment that Gideon realizes I'm talking to God. Ah, oh, oh no. Oh no. I'm gonna die. I'm talking to God. And so this is what the Lord says to him in Judges 6.23. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Well, that's good, because dying is not something I was looking forward to. And then he vanishes. And that's all the scripture says, as he vanishes. You know, and I don't know how that happened. I mean, he just get out of there real fast? Or was it like the Star Trek thing? And he's gone. I'm not sure, but if it says it in the word, I believe it. Because that's just the way I'm wired. Gideon proceeds to build an altar to the Lord... And then he gives this altar a name. He names the altar Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now I want to point out a couple things real quick. These are just uh, the observations by the negative here. Gideon does not say that this altar brought peace. He does not say that my obedience brought peace. He does not say that the gift that I brought brought peace. But peace is in a person. The Lord and how do you receive it? Because the Lord said it. Pieces in a person, and it's taken at his word. So I'll just quickly go over the rest of the story. You're probably familiar with it. Gideon actually shows over and over throughout the rest of this story, how frightened he is. He's really not a great guy, you know? I mean, he's not really a bad guy, except for this one part of the story where he kills everybody in a town because they didn't give him something to eat. I don't know. There's a lot of details there, so maybe I'll just give him grace for that, I guess. (laughs) That's a weird thing to say, grace for that, right? He killed everybody in town. It's grace for that. Um... There we go. <laughs> that's, what he, that's another good one. It's the Old Testament. Um, but anyway, other than that, Gideon's always afraid. You know, he, if God says, go take care of your father's altars. You know, you need to get rid of them. So he does, but he does it at night when nobody's looking. He tips it over, but they catch him. And luckily his father bails him out. So then God says, okay, well, you dealt with the father thing, but now we really need to deal with the Midianites. So go take the Midianites. And what does is, what is Gideon do? Are you? sure are you sure i'm the least of my clan you know least of my family and he says how about this this would be really cool really super cool this is my translation i'm not sure if that says that in the hebrew but this would be awesome if you could take a fleece and i get out and i'm like check it out everything's really dry but oh my goodness look how soaking wet the fleece is wouldn't that be crazy awesome cool miracle you know if you did that i would probably believe that you want me to take out the midianites and so and so he wakes up and sure enough he in fact he wrings out the fleece that fills an entire jar of water so god says go take out the midianites and gideon goes are you sure i mean forgive me but that could have been a coincidence but what if like the ground was like super wet but the fleece was dry that would be pretty neat too and so God, being the patient God that he is, he gets up, the fleece is dry, the ground is wet, and he goes, okay, we're going to go. He's still afraid. He's still afraid. In fact, this time, if you go to... Um, that's what I get for skipping. If you go to Judges chapter 7... No, that's not it. I'll just tell or tell it. <laughs> this time, when God goes to, to, um, to Gideon... He doesn't even bother to wait for Gideon to express his fear. It's in Judges chapter 7, verse 9, where he says, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And look at the next word that he says. But if you're afraid, this is God speaking, he doesn't even wait. But if you're afraid, um, just take your servant, uh, Purah, with you. And then you go down to verse 11, and it says, He went down with Pura. He's afraid. And this is a great story too, because here's here's um here's Gideon and his servant Purah, and they I don't know what how they do it. Somehow they get close to the Midianite camp where there's 135,000 soldiers. Right? They get close to the camp and they're listening to conversations. So either they're hiding behind a rock or something, or maybe they're blending in. I don't know. It doesn't say how, but they're they're sitting there listening, and they happen to be among 135,000 soldiers. By this one particular soldier who had a particular dream that he felt led to share with people. Wonder who gave him that dream. Ah, God. Isn't he just tricky like that? I like God. I like how he works. <clears throat> and so here's the dream. He says, God, and, and you got you to understand, you got a bunch of soldiers standing around, right? Everyone have like, like, no, I don't want to ask this. Oh, it anyway. <laughs> Anyone <laughs> have embarrassing dreams? You're like, that was weird. That was weird, and I'm not gonna tell anybody about that one because that's just. Ugh. So, I would think this is one of those kinds of dreams, but for some reason, especially if you're around a bunch of um, soldiers. But the guy tells it. He says, "Okay, dudes, seriously, I had this weird dream, and um, in the dream, this barley loaf, yeah, yeah, you know, like a loaf of bread, it's like, it's like rolling down the hill, and it." crushes all of our tents. All of our tents are crushed underneath this loaf of bread. I'm like that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. You know? It was a devastating, it was it was an act of God. It was this traumatic event with this with this horrible barley loaf that's come to attack us and and crush us. Well if that dream isn't weird enough and Gideon's there listening to the dream, one of the other guys says, oh, oh, oh I think I know what it means and he says "Oh, what does it mean I think Gideon's going to come and destroy all of us and at that point I'm reading a lot between the lines obviously (laughs) but at that point if I'm in Gideon's shoes I'm wondering barley loaf? that's what you think of me? I'm a barley loaf? I'm a loaf of bread and I'm going to destroy the tents now there might be more to it than that I'm not sure But that's how the story... I'm just telling you the story. That's how the story goes. And it's enough to encourage Gideon. So he goes back to his camp. He gets his guys together. I skipped a bunch. His guys, by the way, went from 32,000 down to 10,000, down to 300. So this is pretty cool. I did the math. That's 450 Midianites for every one Israelite. Good odds, right? And God said he did this on purpose because he doesn't want them taking the glory for what he did. Which I think is, goes the same for us, too. I'll come back to that point in a second, but let me tell you the story. So he puts his soldiers together. He arms them the best way he knows how, I guess. He says, well, okay, here, guys. Um, I got a bunch of trumpets. Everybody have a trumpet. That's going to help. Thanks, Gideon. And here's a, here's a, um, here's a jar got a trumpet and a jar. Here's a torch. doesn't mention swords, but I'm assuming they have swords. But we at least know they have a trumpet, a jar, and a torch. And, and Gideon says, we're going to go down to this camp of 135,000 Midianites. And, um, and you just do what I'm going to do. All right? Will you see me do it, just follow my lead. All right? And so he goes up. He blows the trumpet. And so 300 trumpets. Wah! They blow these trumpets. And then they break the jars. I can't remember, I didn't write it down, and then they yell out something about the Lord is giving this land to Gideon or something like that. They, they shout out this thing. Now, all of the soldiers are already kind of worried about this barley loaf dream. <laughs> Why they're worried, I don't know, but God can do anything, right? So, so they're worried about this barley loaf dream, and they're like, oh my goodness, it's happening! It's happening! <laughs> and they start fighting anybody who's close to them, which is really they start fighting each other. And so Gideon just kind of like, wow. And so when the dust clears, do you know how many are left? 15,000. 120,000 Midianites killed each other because of the fear of the barley loaf crushing their tents. The ways of God are not our ways. And so Gideon brings peace, tranquility, rest to the land for a period of time until the next bout. With, um, with idolatry. Now, the reason I took so, so much time sharing that story is because it's important to understand that context of, of where Jehovah Shalom shows up. Because when I read that story, and I read all, all the stories in the book of Judges, I don't get a peaceful feeling, Right? So obviously when God says he's our peace, it really must not speak to the circumstances, right? It must speak to something different. It must be something deeper. So what is peace? Let me give you a simple definition. This is the first definition that I really learned of peace, and as I went and looked at a lot of commentaries and things like that, most of them have very similar thoughts on what the Hebrew concept of shalom is. Peace is a harmony of relationship or reconciliation based upon the completion of a transaction or the payment of a debt. I know that's not really flowery and easy to memorize, but um, I'll unfold it a little bit. There's two parts to this I noticed. this first time I noticed it as I was preparing for this message, the, the two parts. But there's a subjective side of it and there's an objective side of it. So it's a reconciliation or a harmony of a relationship based on the payment of a debt or a transaction. The, the objective side is the payment. The subjective side is the harmony of relationship. Here's how I think it works. <clears throat> a couple years ago, a few years ago, we had some kids playing in our, in, our, in our basement. Actually, let me give you this illustration first, and then I'll talk about the basement thing. So, so how that works is, is, is if like, as if, like, Terry loans me something. Not a guitar? <laughs> We've loaned me your truck before, but I feel bad about it because now I probably acknowledge not. <laughs> so, and so, like, I, like, crash it into something, right? There's, there's, now, Terry's an amazingly grace, gracious person, but there's some sort of chasm there. There's some sort of friction there because I've damaged something of his property, in order for there to be peace In order for things to be right There needs to be some sort of uh, recompense Wherever we, pay, we could place it in a lot of places But let me use the simplest of, of terms for right now And that would be simply I need to replace it I need to replace it And so, But that's not the only way peace works Sometimes peace is established Because of the payment of a debt Made by the guilty party But sometimes peace can be established Because the payment of the debt Is made by the innocent party as if Terry said, you know what, no worries, I'll buy another one. So I'm not going to crash your truck. <laughs> but still, we had, we had a kids playing in our basement uh, a few years ago. And um, one of the neighbor kids um, thought that um, we have a, a flat screen TV down there. He thought that, um, you know, I guess handball or something, they're throwing balls off and it's bouncing off the TV. And, and I was being the good dad that I was, not monitoring, monitoring them at all. And, um, you know, go down there eventually. And I was like, on, the whole screen looks like a spider web. That's neat. I was pretty mad. And um, mad at Samuel for letting it happen. Mad at the kid because that just really isn't a smart thing. And so I'm thinking, man, I'm a dad. If I were a dad, I'd want to know if my son did something like that. So I was like, I should go tell the neighbor. Let him know what, what was going on. So I went over and I went to talk to him. I said, hey, your son was in our basement. They busted up our TV pretty bad. So just want to make sure you can deal with it in your terms the way you deal with it you know but i just want to let you know He's, and he says he said oh you need to be you need me to pay for a, a tv no no it's okay we'll, we'll be okay i just wanted you to be able to do your parenting the way you want to do it don't worry about it in other words in other words i want my relationship to be right with my neighbor and i'm willing to car- I-, I was willing to carry the 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 debt in order to remove the um the wrong that was committed in between does that, does that make sense kind of how the Hebrew idea of shalom works and so when someone says shalom it probably isn't in their minds when they say it it's just kind of like you saying hey there hi there how are you doing fine you know but um, the idea that really is behind the idea of shalom if someone says shalom what they're saying is we're right we're right you know if there's wrong be- between us I'm, I'm covering it I'm forgiving it. I'm letting it go. I'm making up for it. That's the idea of shalom. But then you come to the objective side of it in the New Testament. And in Colossians 1, we read this. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross I, it's, it's been 30 years since I first understood this and it never gets old Jesus looked at you he looked at me and he said there's something wrong here guys there's something wrong you guys have treated my father who I love wrong wrong You've disregarded what he loves. You've not followed his ways. You've abused his children. And there's something wrong between us. And it's not going to be right because peace is only established because of a transaction or a payment of debt. And that payment needs to be happening. And I'm watching you guys, and you're not making it. You're not really trying to make it. And it really looks like you don't even want to make it. But I badly want to be right with you guys. So I'll make it. And he also knows that we couldn't make it. That's the objective reality of peace. Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we all are in sin, and none are right with God, peace can only be, I know when I used to say this phrase before, my students really didn't like it. But peace can only be possessed by those who have salvation. I know a lot of people will say, well, I know people who aren't saved that seem to be very peaceful individuals. It's not really peace, guys. And please don't call it peace. And please don't lust after what is giving them peace. Because not only is it not peace, but it's deadly. One can experience moments of tranquility, but these are passing feelings achieved by distracting oneself from ultimate realities. Sooner or later, every single person has to do business with the fact that if there's a creation, there's a creator. And if there's a creator, does he care how his creation acts? And if he cares how his creation acts, am I in sync with him? Am I at peace with him? If I die and meet him, will we be good or will we not be good? These are realities that every single person has to deal with. And for those who aren't saved to have peace, they're only distracting themselves from the inevitable question, they are not at peace. They just found a convenient little shelter. Only Christians, only those who are saved, can have real peace. Only North Korean Christians who are being tortured and brutalized in unspeakable ways can have peace because they know at the end of the story I'm good with the creator. I'm good with the creator. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they might kill. God's truth endureth still. It's only then that you can really have peace. Everything else is just a distraction until we get to the end so what about subject of peace this is a great verse here and I'm going to skip some things here I don't know why I say that but anyway (laughs) probably for Ben's sake in John 14 Jesus says this to his disciples peace I leave with you my peace I give you not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you ever thought about this verse here in John fourteen, the Last Suppers happened. You know, he's telling his disciples very plainly. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna be killed. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be killed in a in a not nice way. And um, and what's his what's his concern? You guys are gonna be scared. My goodness If you knew that tomorrow You were going to be slaughtered and beaten And tortured in the most brutal way That society knew to do You'd be seeking your own peace Wouldn't you? Jesus is worried about His disciples peace Guys It's going to be awful It's going to hurt a lot And it's going to bother you And I'm really worried it's going to bo- My pain is going to bother you And that bothers me so just hang in there, guys. What kind of heart is that? We don't know a heart like that, because there isn't one anyone like that. There's no one like our God. There's no one like our Savior. That's what perfection looks like. That's what peace with God looks like. Now, does this mean that Jesus was doing this? I want to fix this picture. Was Jesus going? <clears throat> I know the end of the story. It's gonna be bad. It's all good. I'm not worried about it. So just be at peace. I'm the Savior. Is that what he's doing? Don't forget the Garden of Gethsemane. What was he doing? Sweating blood. I've had anxiety. I've had anxiety before where it felt like my head was going to fall off. I've never had anxiety that brought me to sweat blood. And doctors say there is a a kind that could be that severe. So this is not Jesus not taking it seriously. Jesus was like... I don't want to do this. This is going to scare me, but I'm really concerned that you guys have peace. What a Savior we have. Peace can be experienced in a lot of ways. I'm just going to hit on a couple here. The psalmist writes, When we forsake evil, God gives us an experiential peace. When we delight ourselves in the Lord and he gives us the desires of our heart, we feel an experience, experiential peace. When we love God's commands, we experience peace. Or Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Have you ever thought about that passage as it it relates to experiencing peace? God says that some of the trials in your life are you experiencing his discipline, which is coming from his love because you are his child and if I don't experience those I'm not his child so for those of you who say eh, I don't know if the Lord's really ever disciplined me I don't think you should rejoice at that I really don't because it says God disciplines those he loves so next time you face a trial say thank you by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. By the control of our minds, thinking on praiseworthy things, the God of peace will be with you. When you set your minds on the Spirit, the result is life and peace. There's really three things that I want to summarize here. There is a reality to peace that Jesus has summarized. I mean, that Jesus has established. Jesus established the reality of peace. So you are at peace with God if you are in Christ. You ever think about that? You are at peace. Um, I'm over here, so I I don't want to pick on too many. I'll just stick with Terry. (laughs) But here's where it gets weird, though. I'm at peace because I'm in Christ and so that reality of peace whether I feel it or not exists, right? I'm right with God through Christ. Terry's right with God through Christ. What does that say if I'm not right with Terry? That's a problem, isn't it? If Jesus has established peace based on the establishment of peace from Christ can we not have peace with one another. I want to give you this one quote, and then I'll stop. A.W. Tozer writes this about the body of Christ. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to one another standard, to which one must individually bow. Does that make sense? The pianos might not know anything of one another of the other pianos, but they're in tune because they're tuned to the same fork. So, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ. I'm not looking at Terry, I'm looking at Christ. Those worshipers are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Does that make sense? You ever heard that the, the marriage, the marriage um, formula, the, 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 the marriage that prays together stays together, <laughs> that type of thing? So as I'm looking at God and my delight is in Him and in His commands and in His promises and in His provisions and in His peace and those around you are doing the same, we are more and more and more and more united. You ever think that the disunity in the body of Christ has more to do with the fact that we're not looking at the same thing than it does to have to do with whether or not we have differences? I thought that was a great quote as far as the idea of peace. So, Jesus has established peace. We need to know that peace, receive it, and accept it. And we need to share that Peace and spread it. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you for loving us at such a great cost. Help us to love one another, disregarding the cost and looking to the prize. Help us to love you with all our hearts and in so doing, be united like we've never been before. Help us to be one in heart and mind and soul spirit. And I pray that as we do this, that we would experience a corporate peace that in part reflects the objective peace that you've given us in Christ. And as we do that, I pray that we might be able to spread that peace more clearly into our families and our communities. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.